The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. text this morning. We began looking at this text beginning in verse 37 last week. Uh, We caught the first part of it, but uh, I'll read the whole thing from verse 37 all the way to the end of the chapter as we'll uh, try and wrap this whole piece up this morning. Luke writes for us these words. He says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and he reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it'll be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. This is your word, Lord. These are not the words of men. These are the words of God. This is your revealed will for us. It is truth. It is truth unmixed with error. And it is what you have for us to consider today. It's truth that matters. All of your truth matters. We live in a world filled with lies and full of deceptions, filled with liars and deceivers. And in the midst of it stands you. 
Lord Jesus, the way, the truth, and the light. Lord Jesus, as we look at this encounter you had during a lunch invitation, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth, that we would examine our own hearts, that we might know that we are in the faith, that we might search out in our own lives any roots of spiritual hypocrisy that might find their home there, and that we might pull them up at the root, that we might be, that you might make us by your spirit discerning disciples who could spot spiritual hypocrites before they can influence us that we might be devoted to your truth and to those who speak the truth on your behalf. Spirit of God, we will not understand this text without your help this morning. And so for that, we together join our hearts and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We began looking at this text last week. And we've sort of titled this two-part series, Spiritual Hypocrisy Exposed. We could have called it a profile on spiritual hypocrisy. And the way we've sort of organized it is, is that way, sort of a profile of characteristics, if you will, of spiritual hypocrites. For that's exactly what we see Jesus expose at this lunch date with a Pharisee and some of his friends. We see Jesus confronting the largest spiritual hypocrites of his day, who happened to also at one and the same time be the most revered and the most honored religious leaders of the day. And it's hard for us to sort of blunt the impact uh, of, of what's going on here. It's hard for us really to capture it being this far removed from history. But the men to whom Jesus is speaking in this encounter were literally the most revered religious leaders of the day. Everybody would have looked up to these men as, these men as paragons of spiritual virtue. They would have looked to them to be dispensers of God's truth. They would have looked to them to be models of godly faithfulness and holiness. And yet Jesus exposes them here as the exact opposite of all of that would have been shocking to anybody who heard this encounter, and it would have been shocking to those who were the recipients of Jesus' words here. You cannot underestimate how offensive this encounter had to have been to the hosts. And when you and I think of Jesus, I think, in, I think we normally think of him in terms of being gentle and meek and mild and loving and kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving. And he is all of those things. But the Jesus we encounter here, I think if we see him for who he is and we understand what's happening in this encounter, it's harder for us to get our minds around. We don't like to think of Christ in terms of one who confronts to the face in very graphic, invisible terms with their error. In fact, in offensive terms. In fact, when you look at this encounter, it would be hard to imagine a more direct and a more offensive way for Jesus to engage this conversation with these people than what he does here. 
And there's probably a part of you that's like me, that sort of in the back of our mind thinks, wow, this is, this is, this is borderline rude. Like somebody invites you to lunch and you accept the invitation to lunch and you go to their home and the first thing you do is intentionally blow right past what you know is the understood tradition for all godly people and you recline at the table and the moment it's brought to your attention, you unleash just a litany of offensive rebukes of their life and their character and all of their godly behavior or so-called godly behavior. Like, who does that? We've invited some folks over for lunch today after church, and I hope it doesn't go this way. (laughs) Honestly. But is it rude to confront people with the truth? Or is that, in fact, loving? Isn't it actually the height of love to confront people with the truth? Sometimes now people need to be confronted in direct ways. And there's a lot of discernment that has to be exercised in understanding the difference between, between, between who your audience is at any given moment and what kind of communication they need. The Lord himself knows his audience perfectly in every situation. He knows when someone needs a gentle word and he knows when somebody needs a crack upside the head. And nobody needed a crack upside the head more than these men. They were completely blind to their error. The most unloving thing, the most unkind thing Christ could do would be to go and enjoy a nice, genteel lunch with them and leave them in the condition that they were in. The most loving thing, in fact, he could do in this situation, in this moment, was the very thing that he does, as offensive as it would have seemed to his hosts. J.C. Ryle comments on this. He says... That false charity which calls itself unkind to say that there's anyone in error finds no encouragement in the language used by our Lord. He calls things by their right names. He knew that accurate disease and that acute disease and and that acute diseases need severe remedies. He would have us know that the truest friend to our souls is not the man who's always speaking smooth things and agreeing with everything we say. But the man who tells us the most truth. The truest friend you and I have is the person who tells us the truth when we need to hear it. Even if it is at risk of offending us. And that's what Jesus does here. Really what he's doing in this encounter is twofold. It's on the one hand a stunning rebuke, and on the other hand, it's really an offer of hope. It's really a merciful thing to call out the sin of these men and to give them opportunity to hear the truth about the nature of who they are. It's a merciful thing to give them an opportunity, one more opportunity to hear the truth and to repent and to turn before it's too late. The sad reality of this encounter is that they fail to do that. They don't do it. And they stand really as a stark warning to all of us, folks who sort of are religious people, who carry ourselves about doing religious things, 
who think it's important to read the word of God and to study it and to know it. And these men stand for us as really a, a frightening warning and a frightening reminder that it's completely possible to be incredibly religious, to be incredibly moral, to be incredibly knowledgeable of the word of God, and to be completely as far away from him as possible. And to be utterly deceived about ourselves and who we are and where we stand with God. Spiritual hypocrisy blinds us to the truth. And so we want to look at this text and we want to gain a sort of a profile of characteristics of, of what spiritual hypocrisy looks like, what spiritual fraud looks like, because we want to be able to spot it in other people so that we're not led astray by people like this and so that we can look in the mirror real, real long and real hard and ask the question, are these characteristics at any level descriptive of me? Could somebody come into my life and say to me things similar to these? And am I blind to those things? Is it even possible? And so we began this last week, and we started really in verse 37, and we started building a list of sort of characteristics of spiritual hypocrisy or a profile on spiritual hypocrisy. And we saw a few things last week. I won't reteach them all, but I just give them to you in case you weren't here. Some of you weren't last week just to be up to speed. In verses 37 and 38, we saw really the first thing that he teaches us, that spiritual hypocrites add to God's law. There are people who add to God's law. That's what they do. And the first thing that Jesus encounters is this Pharisee who invites him to lunch. He comes into his home and he, and he challenges him on this spiritual ritual that has been elevated to the level of canonical doctrine. This idea of hand washing, a ceremonial piece that was done before you sat down and ate a meal. It, God had never required people to do this. It was not a part of God's law. It was a part of the man-made law and the man-made tradition that the Pharisees had added to on top of God's law and required people to live by. And Jesus knew the difference between the truth of God's law and the man-made foolishness that's added to it. And so he blows right through this man-made stuff and he confronts this Pharisee right at the outset at his addition to the law of God. And we saw that that's what spiritual hypocrites do. That's what spiritual frauds do. They add to God's law. They're not content to start and stop where the word of God starts and stop. They have their own separate rule book uh, that's filled with all of their additions and all of their subtractions and all of their preferences and all of their extrapolations and all of their interpretations and all of their pet ways of applying God's word that goes beyond what the word itself actually says. But they create their own rule book and they make up their own additions and they judge other people by those rules. And they expect others to live by the rules that they've now made and judge them to be inferior when they don't. And it doesn't matter what Christian tradition you come from, there's some degree of this that happens in every tradition. Where we take what God's word says and we add to it, or we extrapolate from it, or we interpret applications from it that are, that are maybe legitimately connected to that text, but really there are interpretations in a modern setting and we decide that that's the only way that this could be applied and anyone else who applies it differently is wrong. And we start calling everybody a heretic who doesn't see everything the way we do. And what we've really done is just created our own rule book and we've added to the law of God. And that's what these men did regularly. They took their own convictions and codified them as though they were the law of God. 
But it wasn't all they did. In verse 39 through 41, we saw a second thing about spiritual hypocrites. They're obsessed with externals. And Jesus calls them out on this in a very direct way. He says, you Pharisees, you're like dirty, filthy dishes. You, you, you clean up the outside so that it looks pretty and looks nice on the outside. But if you turn the cup over, it's filled with grime and filth and nastiness. And that's just like you. You shine up the outside of your life. You put on this spiritual veneer when everybody is looking at you so that you look religious and you look spiritual. And everybody looks at you and thinks you're squeaky clean. But on the inside, you are filthy and you are nasty and you are corrupt and you are vile. He says, you're fools. You're fools to think that God only cares about what you do on the outside and that he doesn't care about who you are on the inside. He says, don't you know the person who made the outside of the cup made the inside of the cup? He cares just as much about the inside as the outside? You can't live a duplicitous life where you just shine up the outside, but the inside is is vile. God is concerned about who you are on the inside Every bit as much, if not more, than he is about what you do on the outside. The promise of the gospel has always been that God transforms us on the inside, and the result of that transformation is a change in behavior that shows up on the outside. But to try to clean up the outside without the inside being addressed is foolishness, and it's hypocrisy. And at best, all it does is fool other people, but it never fools God. He understands the heart. But these Pharisees were only concerned about, they were obsessed with the externals. That's all they cared about. And then verse 42, he, he exposes really another sort of characteristic of these men and of spiritual hypocrites throughout the generations. They have a, a misplaced zeal. He uses tithing as an illustration for these men. He says, look, you guys, your, your energy and your effort and your zeal and your passion is completely misplaced. You are obsessed with little petty things like tithing. You go down to these little, little, little tiny herbs in your garden and you're obsessed with cutting out 10% of those tiny little herbs and making sure that you tithe those things to show everybody how godly you are, that you do it to the nth degree in your life, even though when that isn't required in God's law. But the big things like justice and mercy and love for God, you completely neglect those. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you give no attention to that. Loving your neighbor as yourself, you don't care about any of that. But you're at home dicing out the tithing of your herbs. Your zeal is misplaced. You're obsessed obsessed with sort of the petty and the peripheral and the main things that matter you absolutely don't care about. And you see this with spiritual hypocrites throughout the generation, and even in our day, the same thing happens. They, they're obsessed and, and committed to peripheral and petty inside things. But the main things they, they, they neglect. And that brings us really up to speed to verse 43, where we pick up today. And he gives us another characteristic that we need to look at. Spiritual hypocrites crave honor and attention. They crave honor and attention. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you Pharisees. Let me tell you what you really love. 
what really drives you. What you wake up in the morning thinking about, what you really think about is getting the best seat in the synagogue. Now, the local synagogue in the first century had a particular seating arrangement. The, the, the most important people got to sit closest to the front. And in the very front, there was sort of a semicircular row of chairs that actually faced outward toward the congregation. And if you're really important and really spiritual and really godly, then you got to be in that row of chairs that looked out at everybody else. And it wasn't so much so you could see everybody else. It was so that everybody else could, what? They could see you. They would say, oh, look at, look at that guy. Look at Josh up there in the front. He's one of those godly ones that gets to look, stand up there. Look, he's the paragon of virtue. He's in the front row, right? What does that say about you all here, right on the front row? These are the godly people in the church. They got the front rows, right? Evan's the most godly of them all, right there in the front row. He and Jaya. We don't have a seating arrangement, even though you sort of naturally gravitate to the same seats week to week, right? Don't you do that? We don't have a seating assignment here. And where you sit has nothing to do with your level of godliness, at least I don't think it does. Um, But in the first century, it mattered. It mattered where you sat. And the people in the very front were the most godly. And the people in the most front were the people that everybody looked up to. And these were the seats that were most coveted by these Pharisees. They wanted to be the ones in the front. They wanted the ones that everybody looked at, the ones that everybody honored. It wasn't enough for them to be pious. They wanted to be recognized as pious. It wasn't enough for them to obey God. They wanted to be seen obeying God. They craved honor and they craved attention. And it showed up in really just about every aspect of their lives. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, Matthew records Jesus speaking about this to his disciples. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In other words, don't do this. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Think about that. Think about that statement. Don't don't practice your faith in order to be seen. The moment you do something godly in order to be seen, it has no eternal merit and no eternal value. You have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they might be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. He's saying to his disciples, don't be like these Pharisees. Everything they do is corrupted by a craving for honor and attention from men. And so everything they do, from their giving to their praying, everything they they do from their helping of the poor, everything that they do is done not in order to be done to please God, but in order to be seen by men. So when they pray, they pray where everybody can see them, and they use flowery words so everybody can think they're super spiritual. And when they give, they blow trumpets, and they clang the money in the money bucket. 
so that everybody can see how much they're giving. And when they help the poor, they make a big spectacle of it so that everybody can know how pious and how good they are. That's not how you ought to be. True godliness doesn't behave that way. True godliness is perfectly content to serve the Lord in secret, to give in secret, to help in secret, to pray in secret, to serve in secret. True godliness doesn't crave honor from men. It doesn't crave attention from other people. It seeks to please the Lord. And it seeks to honor Him. All of these men, this is what they were about. All of their spiritual activity was corrupted by this desire to be seen and this desire to be honored by men. They didn't pray out of love of God and desire to commune with Him. They prayed in order to be seen praying. They didn't give to the poor out of love and concern for the plight of the poor. They gave to the poor in order to be seen giving. They didn't attend worship concerned about offering God the very best that they had in worship because he was worthy of their worship. They, were, they came and they worshiped because they were concerned about getting the most prominent seat in order to be seen worshiping. You love the best seats at the synagogue. And the greetings in the marketplaces is another thing that they would do. There was a sort of a religious tradition to honor those who were your spiritual leaders. And so when you ran across the Pharisees in the, in the marketplace or out in public, it was, it was understood that you treated them with respect and with honor. And you would, they had this whole sort of litany of elaborate greetings that, that were acceptable and appropriate with, with, by which to honor such teachers in public. And you were expected to do that. And so these men loved to go around the marketplaces in public and they loved to encounter the, the ones that they saw as sort of the, the peons out there of the world. And they loved to hear them call them rabbi and teacher and honor them with these titles and these profuse greetings in public. They loved to be publicly honored by their titles. Rabbi, teacher. They loved to prance around and hear people do that with them. Pharisees largely, as a group, came out of working class families. They were not typically the, the wealthy and elite of society, at least their heritage wasn't normally that. But becoming a Pharisee afforded them a way to both upper class nobility and wealth. And so they took great pride in their titles. And Jesus warns his disciples, you don't behave this way. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 8, Jesus says this. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, Jesus uses them as the opposite of what we should do. Godly people don't go around looking to be exalted by names and by titles. They carry themselves with an appropriate humility. 
But these spiritual hypocrites, like all throughout the generations, highest concern isn't serving God. It's being seen and it's being honored for serving God. They want to be revered. They want to be honored. They want to be loved. They want to be recognized. That's what drives them. They crave these things. But true godliness seeks one thing. True godliness seeks to please God, not man. It seeks to please God. It cares primarily about what God thinks about what they do, not what men think about what they do. True godliness is absolutely content to serve God without recognition, without applause, without any exaltation, except the smile of a Savior. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really gives a whole profile of godly spirituality. And it would be an interesting study for you to go look at the Sermon on the Mount and the characteristics that Jesus builds out there for, for, for godly piety and compare it to this profile of spiritual hypocrisy. And you'll see almost a, a polar opposite at every level. One example of that is here, this craving for honor and attention. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Instead of strutting around uh, like peacocks, proud of all their external righteousness, true believers are marked not by this proud strutting at their religious behavior, but at a, at a genuine mourning over their sin and unrighteousness. They're not proud of their spiritual achievements. Their lives are marked more by the shame of their ungodliness, and they carry themselves with humility. Verse 11, it doesn't say blessed are you when everybody honors you and, and, and gives you attention and calls you by glorious names and puts you in the best seat. It says blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Who's the blessed man, the blessed woman? They're not the people who crave honor and attention. They're not the ones who serve looking to get applause. They're not the ones who walk around with this sort of simmering, sort of simmering resentment at all the things they do that nobody appreciates and nobody recognizes and nobody thanks. They're the people who carry themselves with a genuine humility, mourn for their sin. Who operate out of a motivation to please God above everything. But spiritual hypocrites, they crave honor and attention. And that's what these men did. But he goes on in verse 44 to say something even further. He gives us another characteristic. Spiritual hypocrites corrupt other people. They corrupt others. It's not bad enough that these men are, 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 are spiritual hypocrites themselves, but what they're doing is their, their hypocrisy is contagious and it's malignant. He says in verse 44, Woe to you, for you're like to unmarked graves. The people walk over them without knowing it. Now, this seems a little obscure at the surface just reading it, but it's actually quite vivid and quite clear. And if you lived in the first century and you were immersed in that culture, you would understand this immediately, what he was talking about. But because we're not, it's a little harder for us to unpack. But it's really an easy and obvious illustration. If Pharisees cared about all sorts of things that could defile a person. But there were very few things that would defile somebody faster than dead bodies and graves. If you touched a dead body or you touched a grave, 
you were considered defiled for seven days. Now this goes back to Numbers chapter 19, verse 22. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. Of course, the Pharisees weren't content with just what God's word said. They had taken it even further. Um, and, and, and they had declared that not only were you unclean if you touched a grave or a dead body, but if you accidentally walked near a grave and your shadow touched it, it was the same thing. You were defiled by that dead, rotting corpse in the tomb. And so, because this was the understanding that if you accidentally walked across a grave, or if your shadow caught the edge of a tomb somewhere, you were immediately considered defiled, and you were out of action for seven days. If that's the way you live, and that's the kind of fear you live with, and you believe that kind of nonsense, then you live in a culture where everybody's obsessed with graves, and making sure that graves are clearly marked, because nobody wants to go down for seven days, right? Right? That sounds reminiscent of something else that we experienced recently in our culture. It has nothing to do with graves, right? Getting stuck for seven days in some kind of quarantine. But because there was this obsession, what would happen is at least once a year, they would whitewash graves. They would, they would take this whitewash and they would paint up the graves so that they were bright white and everybody knew where they were so that you wouldn't accidentally step across one and get defiled. But every once in a while, somebody would, would forget to do it, or they would get lazy and not whitewash the grave. They wouldn't mark it clearly, and it became obscured by other things. And people would accidentally step across one, and they would get defiled. And Jesus says, that's what you're like. You're like one of these unmarked graves that people step across and accidentally get corrupted and defiled by it. And the thing that he's pointing out to them is simply this. He's saying, you have a corrupting influence on everyone who touches you. Not only are you defiled, but anybody who crosses your path and has contact with the teaching that you espouse, they're defiled too. Your false religion of human works is contagious and it's malignant and it corrupts everybody who touches it. Not only has it infected your hearts, but it's spreading to other people through you. What a vivid thing to say to someone. Not only are you corrupt and defiled and infected, but everybody who, who crosses your path and gives you three seconds of their time is corrupted by your influence. They have a corrupting effect on other people. It's really a, a staggering thing when you think about the fact that all of us are people of influence. It doesn't matter how important you think you are in the world, you're important to some people, and you encounter people in your daily life every day. People cross your path in your home, they cross your path in public, they cross your path in the grocery store, they cross your path when you intentionally meet up with them, they cross your path when you accidentally bump into people in other places. And every time we encounter other people, you and I have the opportunity to influence them either for the better or for the worse. People are either better off or they're worse off for encountering us. Our engagement with others is either a blessing or it's a curse. It either encourages them toward godliness or it drags them down into our own sinfulness. It either inspires them or it discourages them. It either lifts them up or it brings them down. It either helps them or it hinders them. 
And when you and I live in spiritual hypocrisy, that hypocrisy is contagious. It infects the people that we encounter for the worse. When we set ourselves up as godly and we carry around a simmering, sinful anger underneath the surface of our lives, that comes out in our interactions with other people. And it affects them. When you and I call ourselves godly and we present ourselves as Christians and we, and we embrace a lifestyle of gossip where we have loose lips that just talk about anybody and everybody, when other people encounter us, guess what? They're, they're, they're a party to all of that. And that gossip just spills over into their lives and they see a godly person doing that and it becomes a part of what they do. It's a, a corrupting influence. When we carry ourselves around without joy, without happiness, without any sense that we belong to a Savior who's doing great and wonderful things in our life and in the world and in the future, and we carry ourselves with a negative attitude and a negative disposition, looking like we've been slapped in the face with a, a, a dirty sweat sock or something all the time, that's contagious and it's malignant and it corrupts other people. When we carry ourselves with constant faithlessness and doubt that shows up in our interactions with other people and it rubs off. These men had a particular sinful problem. It was they created a, this, this whole religion of works and then all of the behaviors that flowed out of that, all of that it just spilled over into the lives of people who encountered them. It's easy for us to say, well, man, those are terrible men, awful people. What terrible, what terrible people. And to fail to look at our own lives and ask the way, ask ourselves the question, in what ways do I present myself as a godly man or a godly woman? And yet I, I, I carry around this, this sinfulness all throughout me that has influence on other people. A good diagnostic question to ask yourself this morning is this, how do other people feel when they walk away from an encounter with me? How do other people feel when they walk away from an encounter with me? Are they glad they bumped into me or are they regretful? Is their day better because we spoke or is it worse? Do they walk away feeling like their burdens are lighter or like their burdens are heavier? Do they walk away with a, a joy in Christ that's, that's burning brighter or burning dimmer? Spiritual hypocrisy has a corrupting effect on other people. Godliness has a godly effect on other people. And I suspect your life is not altogether different from mine. You know the difference when you're in the presence of somebody quite frequently, right? You know when you have these encounters where you go, man, I sure wish I'd have went down the vegetable aisle before the soda aisle because I would have never ran into that guy. The question we're meant to be asking this morning is, am I that guy? Or when, when people see me, are they happy to see me? Do they want to have an encounter with me because they walk away better because of it? Spiritual hypocrites corrupt others. We need to move quickly here, these last couple. Moving to verse 45, there's more. Spiritual hypocrites are selfish and they lack compassion. Selfish and lack compassion. Let me just move through these last couple very quickly. He says, 
So, so what, something interesting happens here in the middle of this lunch. We're, 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 we come to, to understand here in verse 45 that this isn't a private lunch with just Jesus and a Pharisee. There are other people at the table who are a party to this whole thing. Pharisees and some lawyers are there. <clears throat> One of the lawyers, hearing all of this take place, rebukes Christ. He says, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Like, hey, you're having at that Pharisee there, but the stuff you're saying about him it's getting a little close to home here for us too. Don't you know what you're doing? You're insulting us. He gives Jesus this perfect opportunity to say, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I, I, I didn't want to offend you. I didn't mean to offend you guys. No, 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 I was just talking to him. What does Jesus do? Woe to you lawyers too. <laughs> I love it, right? Since you brought it up, let me talk about you too. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Real quickly, the Pharisees and the lawyers, there's over, overlap between these groups. The lawyers really are people who are also called scribes. They are the sort of the, the, the Bible scholars, the theologians. Some of them are Pharisees as well. Pharisees were a religious sect. Some of them became also lawyers when they studied and became uh, sort of the theologians and the scribes and the, the biblical authorities who had given themselves to the study and to the interpret, uh, interpretation and the exposition of the, the Old Testament. So lawyers were Pharisees in some cases. In some cases they were not. But they were sort of the, the, the experts in the law. They were the ones who interpreted the Bible. And they were the ones that people looked to for authoritative interpretation and teaching from the Bible. They were the, the biblical legal scholars, if you will. That's the kind of lawyer they were. And he says to them, I've got two problems with you. Number one, you load people down with burdens that are unbearable rules and laws and regulations, and you don't do a single thing to help them. The goal of a teacher should be to lift up their, their students, right? The goal of a teacher should be to shrink the gap between the student and the teacher as far as godliness goes. These men sought to widen the gap so that they looked better and other people were crushed. They took the simple law of God and instead of unlocking it in a way, they made it clear and made it easy for the people to follow. They, they piled on top of it law after law after law, so many rules and so many regulations that nobody could possibly keep up with it and nobody could possibly do it all. It was exhausting to even try. It was a crushing load of rules and regulations that nobody could live. They made everything so complicated and so convoluted it was impossible to grasp it and it made it impossible for the average believer to serve God in any way that was faithful. They crushed people with loads of rules. And they didn't do one single thing to help people live underneath all of that. They crushed people and exalted themselves. Their spiritual forefathers had done the exact same things. You could go back to Ezekiel chapter 34, and, G, and excuse me, God, he, he rebukes the religious leaders in Ezekiel's day, and he says, that for the very same thing, he says this, the weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. 
So they're scattered because there's no shepherd, and, and, and they became food for the wild beasts. And God is, he's saying, you're shepherds. You're my shepherds, and you're supposed to be taking care of my sheep. You're supposed to be feeding the hungry. You're supposed to be helping the hurting. You're supposed to be finding the wounded and binding them up. You're supposed to be lifting my people and, and helping them and coming alongside them and serving them. And you're not doing any of that stuff. You're crushing them. You're crushing them. And you're not lifting a finger to help them. In Ezekiel 34, he says to that generation of leaders, he says, because you've abandoned what I've called you to do, I myself will be a shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I'll destroy. God says, I'm going to have to come do for you what you're supposed to be doing because you've not done it. And here in Luke chapter 12, we have the record of God making good on that promise. He has come to do those very things. And what does he find of the religious leaders when he gets to this, this generation? They're doing the same things that their fathers did back in Ezekiel 34. They're supposed to be loving and caring for the sheep and helping them. Instead, they're crushing them. Instead of lifting them up, they're beating them down. Instead of teaching them the truth that sets them free, they're crushing them under the weight of unrealistic expectations that they could never live up to. Shepherds are supposed to lay down their lives for the sheep. And these men live for themselves and they crush the sheep under loads that the sheep could never carry. It's rank selfishness. It's abject lovelessness. They didn't love God's people. In fact, they didn't, not only did they not love them, they disdained them. They looked down on them. They looked out at the people and they saw filthy, defiled, unenlightened masses and they couldn't have cared less about them. It's such a stark contrast to, to Jesus who in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, we're told he goes ashore and he sees a, a crowd. And why does he respond to the crowd? With disdain? No. He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. We saw this back in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus is literally just walking down the street, and this widow from Nain comes walking down, and she's grieving because she's lost her son. This widow is, is going to bury her only son. And in verse 14 of chapter 7, what, G, what, we, what Luke records for us, it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, don't weep. And he heals her son. He encounters this poor widow who he didn't have to do a single thing for, and he has compassion on her, and he lifts her burden. He sets her free from her pain and her hopelessness. That's what godly people do. They operate with compassion for people. They lift people up. They don't crush them. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It frees people from their bondage to trying to live out all these unlivable rules to earn God's favor. To earn God's favor by keeping the law, by doing good works, it's exhausting, it's deflating, it crushes people under a mountain of shame and guilt and doubt. The heart of the true gospel is justification by faith in Christ alone. 
The gospel says you don't have to live under that kind of a mountain of crushing guilt and shame and embarrassment and pain. You don't have to live with a crushing sense that you cannot and will not ever please God with your life. You don't have to do that because Christ has lived a perfect life on your behalf. He has completely fulfilled the law on your behalf. And if you will place your faith and trust in him, what will happen is his perfect righteousness gets transferred to your account, imputed to you, and your sin gets transferred to his body on the cross. He pays for your sin, and you enjoy his perfect righteousness. And you live in freedom. You don't have to live under the crushing weight of trying to earn God's favor. You can be free of all that. You can be free of all that. That's what the gospel teaches. But selfish leaders who lack compassion, spiritual hypocrites, don't want to set people free with the truth. They want to crush them with rules because the rules keep the people low and they keep them high. It's sick and it's demented, but it's what they do. Verse 47 through 51, spiritual hypocrites are condemned by God. This is a lengthy piece here that seems a bit confusing when you read it. I'm going to just sort of filter it to something very simple and clear to help you understand what he's saying here. They're condemned by God. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. What's he talking about there? Well, these religious leaders have gotten away with their hypocrisy for a long time. God has been very, very, very patient with them over time. He has not judged them in any real sort of temporal sense. They seem, from all outward appearances, to be getting away with it. And they have been for a very long time. As though God wasn't paying attention, they've lived with this hypocrisy, and they've played this scam for a long, long time. But what we see here is that God was paying attention, and he's paying attention, but he's been patient. On the outside, it looks like they're getting away with it, but God's watching, and his patience has come to an end. And Jesus saying to these people, listen, you build tombs for the prophets whom your fathers killed. What he's talking about there is they would embellish the tombs of, of the prophets, and they would build all these ornate things like they were revering the prophets. So the reality is their spiritual forefathers, the religious leaders of generations gone by, actually rejected the prophets and killed them. And so by ornate, making these ornate graves, what they were trying to do is give the appearance that they actually were better than their spiritual forefathers, that they actually revered the prophets. But Jesus is saying to them here, you know what? All of that is just window dressing. You're exactly like your fathers. You're exactly like them. Because your fathers rejected the message of the prophets and killed them, and that's exactly how you operate. Because the prophet who's standing in front of you is the one to whom all the Old Testament prophets looked and pointed, and you are right this moment rejecting him and rejecting his message, and you're acting just like your fathers did. You're no different. You can fool people by painting up the graves and letting them think you're somebody, but you need to understand you're just like your fathers. You're guilty and you're condemned, and God's judgment is coming. He says, the wisdom of God said, and another way of saying that is God, another translation of that is, for God in his wisdom said, I'll send prophets and apostles, some of whom they'll kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. What's all that about? Well, he says, here's what's going on. I'm going to send you prophets 
I send you prophets and apostles. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about the Christian apostles. He's talking about the apostles in the New Testament who are going to come. And he's saying, you know what's going to happen? There's a whole generation of prophets and apostles that are coming, and you're going to do exactly to them what your fathers did to the prophets before. You're going to reject their message. You're going to kill them. And that's exactly what these men did, right? They did this. John the Baptist, Jesus himself, Stephen, James, most of the apostles... Barclay says this, the the attitude of the scribes and the prophets was paradoxical. They professed a deep admiration for the prophets, but the only prophets they admired were dead. When they met a living one, they tried to kill him. They honored the dead prophets with tombs and memorials, but they dishonored the living ones with persecution and death. And Jesus says something really stunning. He says, God's patience with you has run out. And what's getting ready to happen is the floodgate of God's wrath that's been held up for all these generations is getting ready to get unleashed on you and your generation. You're going to get it all. The judgment of God is about to come like a flood and it's going to blow you away. When you have some time at home, read about what happens to Jerusalem in A.D. 70, well, between 66 and 70 A.D. when the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem. And you read about the awful, horrendous things that happen to this generation, all part of the judgment of God for their spiritual hypocrisy. It's coming. God's patience has run out. And you're going to bear the brunt of the wrath of God that's been held up generation after generation after generation. It's coming to you. Last but least, not least, spiritual hypocrites obscure the gospel. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken the key of knowledge away. You didn't enter it yourself, and you hindered those who were entering it. They obscure the gospel. Real simple. The worst thing you can say to a teacher of the Bible is to say, not only do you not know how to teach it, not only do you not know what you're talking about, you couldn't possibly teach somebody else. The Bible, though the the kingdom of God is locked to you, and anybody that you influence gets locked out too. That's how great of a teacher you are. You're a teacher who teaches things you don't even know about a kingdom that you're not a part of. And instead of leading people into the knowledge of the one true God, you're actually locking them out of it. Oh, you know your Bible. You know the words on the page, but you have no idea what it means. You've got all these fanciful interpretations. You've got all this nonsense that you teach people, but it isn't the truth. And it doesn't do anything but lead them away. That's what spiritual hypocrites always do. They obscure the gospel. They obscure the truth. They make it harder than it needs to be. They come up with fanciful, allegorical interpretations, things that you listen to them teach and you read the words and you go, where did that guy get that from? Or how in the world did they come up with that? I don't see any of that on the page. It's because they don't have any idea what they're talking about. They're blind guides leading the blind. And anybody who follows them ends up in a ditch right where they end up. The true people who represent the Lord, the true apostles, the true teachers, the true prophets. They teach the truth and they make it clear. Make it clear. That's a pretty, that's a pretty devastating sort of a profile, isn't it? Selfish, lacking compassion, condemned by God. 
people who obscure the gospel, people who crave honor and attention, people who add to the word of God, people who are obsessed with just the outside but have corrupt hearts. And Jesus lays it all open right in this man's lunch table. And you'd think that the man would be in tears on his face before the God of the universe. But he isn't. Luke simply tells us that he and the rest of them went away angry and bitter, looking for retaliation, hardened in their hypocrisy. So what about you this morning? As you look at that list and as you listen to some of that flesh out here, do you see any of that in your own life? Is it possible that in some ways, big or small, these characteristics find root in your heart, in your life? Is it possible? Will you see it? And if you see it, how will you respond? Will you respond with repentance? Asking God by His Spirit to help you rip up the roots of these things in your life? Or will you just harden yourself? Say, oh no, that's not me. continue on. What Jesus addresses here is not a small thing. It's huge. It's huge. There's nothing more dangerous in the world, I don't think, to people's soul than spiritual hypocrites who are frauds because they lead them away from God and lead them to eternal condemnation. That's not a small thing. People can do all kinds of things, horrible things to you in your life, but the worst thing somebody could ever do is lead you to a place where you lose your soul forever. We should have no tolerance of this stuff in our own life, and we should have no tolerance of it around us. There's a time to be merciful, and there's a time to be merciless with ourselves and with others. And when it comes to spiritual hypocrisy, this is the place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we understand that we are fallen and we understand that we don't live lives of perfect holiness we require the help of your spirit every day but we also know that we're frail and we're proud and it's very easy for us to spot sin in everybody else and it's very hard for us to, to admit it in ourselves particularly when it comes to hypocrisy we have a remarkable ability to deceive ourselves into thinking we're better than we are. There's a part of us, Lord, that loves, that craves to recognition and honor, even in our serving you. There are times when our influence on other people is a corrupting influence, not, a, not an uplifting, redemptive influence. There's a time, there are times in our life when we lack compassion for people. Instead of lifting their burdens, we make them worse. We all have our own little rule books that we like to add to your word and hold other people accountable to our laws, not yours. Lord, if we're honest, and if your spirit will open our eyes, we'll see these things. They're there. And we need you to rip them out of our lives. Give us eyes to see them. Give us an appropriate grief over them. Draw us to repentance and help us, Lord, to weed the garden of our hearts from all hands of hypocrisy.
We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.